Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua. I'm sitting in the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who might be listening to the program. We are very thankful that you have taken time, made time, out of your very busy schedule in order to join us here on the Radio Lighthouse. And I say join us, I choose that word very carefully, because we do want you to join us, not only to listen, but also to interact with us. Now, Pastor, before we jump into our topic that we've briefly discussed for the last couple of weeks, uh, we've got a couple of questions that are carryover from last week. The first one comes from St. Kitts. Pastor, what is the purpose of space? That um, particular question has provoked me to think seriously about the matter. And uh, outside of human speculation, I don't think um, there's any other answer than that which, which the Bible gives. And I think space is designed to be God's empirical witness to his infinitude and omnipotence. In other words, the, the space is so vast, the size of the universe is beyond man's comprehension, and it only leads to one conclusion, as the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. I want to point out a few things here uh, that people may not understand how vast uh, the universe is. I'm told that our galaxy, which is the Milky Way, has within it a billion stars. Now, a size of the stars vary. Uh, the smallest star is a neutron star, and it's 26, 25 miles across in diameter. Uh, a supergiant star, like one called Betelgeuse, which is in the Orion um, constellation, it's a thousand times the diameter of the of the sun. Now, the sun is our nearest star, and the diameter of the sun is 864,000 miles, just the diameter. That is staggering. Uh, the star is 93 million miles away from us. But that's, that's uh, the nearest star after the, the, uh, the sun is one called Proxima Centura. That is 4.24 light years away from planet Earth. Now, light travels at 186,000 miles uh, per second. That means that it is 6, 6 trillion miles away from planet Earth. It is staggering. If you were to travel at uh, 86,000 kilometers an hour, it would take you 81,000 years to get there. To that, the sun. Uh, t- not to get to si- this, um, this, uh, this other star. Okay. But that is staggering. I mean, just to think about that. Uh, the Earth, uh, in terms of the where the star is, it is uh, 26,000 light years from it. Uh, and then there's another star that they call Andromeda, which is 2.5 million light years away from planet Earth. And they tell us, by the way, that 
the Earth from the to the center of our uh, galaxy. It is 26,000 light, light miles from here to the center of a galaxy. That means another 26,000 uh, light years on the other side. I mean, the figure is just 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 staggering. The oldest um, galaxy, uh, they tell us that we have been able to see, it is 13.4 billion light years away from planet Earth. They call it GNZ2. But when you add all of that, then they tell us that they've got a billion galaxies like our galaxy. It is just staggering. It is just staggering. It's mind-boggling. And that's why the psalmist in Psalms 19, verse 1 to 3, could you read that for us, please, Brother Nathan? Yeah, I mean, turn there, Psalm 19. Verse 1 to 3. The chief musician, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So it's clearly a universal, unanswerable uh, witness uh, to God's majesty, his greatness, his omnipotence, and his infinitude. And then another interesting verse that tells us what this is all about is Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. And that says... Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Again, Paul is explaining the universe is a witness to God's eternal power. And also witness to the fact that he is deity, he's divine, uh, he's God. So the only explanation, and by the way, when man looks into this vast expanse that he cannot even comprehend, can't even compute, to be very honest with you, he's driven to one or two conclusions. He, he, he realizes that, uh, he believes that earth is, cannot be the center of the universe. Well, the Bible never said that earth was the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. Uh, and, and that is what's so starting. The other thing that they come to a conclusion that this this universe is so vast, they've got to have aliens. It can't just be for planet, uh, for, for human beings. But again, the whole purpose of the universe uh, really is to display the majesty and the glory of God, to let man know that you're dealing with a being that is infinite. You cannot comprehend. You cannot condense him. You can't put him in a test tube. He's that great. He's that majestic. That's the whole. And by the way, what, what is uh, you'll discover that all the great scientists that laid the foundation of modern science were all believers. And I don't think a man that really studies science in any significant great detail, I can't see how he can ever come to any conclusion that there's any other uh, reason or explanation for the universe, that there's a God who is of infinite wisdom and intelligence. Uh, it's just too complicated to just um, conjecture that it just happened. Um, it, the modern scientists are now forced to talk about what they call intelligent design. They don't want to call it God, but they recognize that uh, what is there is not only uh, a, a, a concoction of, of, of um, atoms or um, um, created things that are just ad hoc. They're there in balance, in design, and of course with the the sorting out of the DNA, they know that there's enough information in DNA to fit in all the Encyclopedia Britannica, and it's not scrambled, it is just logical order. They're staggered by it. The only thing to do is to bow in humility to acknowledge God, but man in his arrogance continues to believe the folly of evolution. 
Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 739. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live call-in program. You can call in and be put live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. Our next question comes again from St. Kitts. Thank you to the individual who sent in these questions. What is meant that a spirit does not occupy space and time? Again, I can only give you a subjective answer. Uh, I cannot um, go beyond speculation and conjecture because I don't know if anybody can really answer that question. But I suspect that what is meant by this is that because a spirit is not a material being, he's incorporeal, uh, he cannot be confined to a particular shape or space and therefore um, that is probably what is meant, that just like a cup will take occupy space because it's, it's material, a spirit doesn't occupy uh, a space in that regard. Um, however, uh, it is very, very clear that that is only limited in terms of, of, of time here on planet Earth because we are told in Jude chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 9 that God confines spirits to a particular space. So, I am not too sure how to how to answer that question. For example, look at Jude six for just a moment. Jude six says, "And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day." So clearly, he has them confined, so they cannot be released. So, so there's some something there that even though they are spirits, they're yet able to be confined. Now, what that means and how that works. Is beyond my my mindset. The other verse that is interesting is Matthew is uh, Revelation chapter nine. Uh, Nathan, you can read chapter nine. We may read verse one to to um, maybe ten. Okay. Revelation chapter nine reads as follows: And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven onto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit, and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto him was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. Verse 6, And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and the death shall flee from them. And the and the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and the, on their heads were as it were the crowns like gold, and their faces were as faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And verse 10 says, And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. Okay. Um, clearly that passage has to do with um, demonic spirits confined in the bottom of the spit until 
the time comes for them to be released. So even though they are disembodied, they are, they are spirits, yet somehow God is able to confine them to, to some particular space or location. So that's why I'm a little bit ambivalent to know exactly what, what's going on here. But uh, so I, I, I would say that the fact that um, spirits don't have a, a, a material body, they would indicate somehow that they don't uh, occupy a particular space. They can have movement. The other thing about op- occup- uh, not confined to time, again, I, I think that this uh, has to do, if you're dealing with, with Earth, planet Earth, um, there is some kind of a time element involved even with angelic beings. For example, if you look at Daniel chapter 8, chapter 10, verse 9, verse 5 to 14. Daniel chapter 10, verse 5 to 14. Then I lifted mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of upaz. His body was also like the barrel, and his face was the appearance of lightning and his eyes as lamps of fire and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass and his voice of his words like to the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them. So they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone and I saw the great vision and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned in me, turned me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Verse 10. Yet I heard the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. You're reading what, Daniel? What? Daniel 10? Yeah, you're reading verse 5 to 14? Mm-hmm. Uh, you sure? Mm-hmm. Okay, but in Daniel chapter ten, um, I, I don't, I don't think I've got, I must have the correct reference. Uh, is where Daniel was um, sent to. Um, an angel was sent to, to answer Daniel's prayer, and he was held back for for uh, two weeks. That's what I want to point out there. That he, he said that uh, until Michael came and rescued him. Uh, he was confined for for two weeks, so clearly it's a time element there. That even though uh, he's dealing with angelic rem, yet um, he was somehow held back for two weeks. So there's a, a time element there. So what I'm saying here is that I'm not too sure to answer the question in terms of um, whether or not um, spirits are confined or don't have um, con- any confinement to time and space. But when it comes to operating within the realm of Earth, clearly there's an element of time involved in this whole matter. But again, it's, it's pure speculation. We, 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 that's not a question. That's a metaphysical physical question, probably for philosophers as opposed to... And the, the Bible doesn't give a very clear answer on this matter. Um, but as long as it has to do with, with Earth, there's a time element involved. And I suspect that even though the angelic beings themselves are operating with a time element, uh, it would relate to them as well, as long as we're dealing with the planet Earth. That verse comes later in that passage. Daniel ten thirteen says, But yeah. the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Is that the verse? Yeah, because I, I give you 5 to 14. You probably read from yeah. 1 to 5. Okay. Am I right? Uh, no, I was on verse 10. Oh, verse 10. Okay, yeah. I should have got you ready in this section. The point there is that the angelic being that was sent to give an answer to Daniel's prayer 
was held back by the Prince of Persia, which is a, an e- evil force, the, that um, a satanic force that was keeping back the the answer coming. And Michael had to come and rescue, but he points out that it's for, for, for two weeks. So there's a time element there involved. And even though he's an angelic being operating in doing God's will, yet when it comes to planet Earth, there's still a recognition of the time element there. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 747. We look forward to your interaction. I'll go as far as to go ahead and thank you in advance for your interaction tonight. If you have a question, go ahead and WhatsApp or text it to 1268-782-1454. Pastor, one other question that has come in from St. Kitts. Did Jesus die a spiritual death? How and why? Well, I want to answer this question in a little bit more detail than I answered the first two questions because um, this is a doctrine that is being taught uh, by the Word of Faith movement and is also being accepted by uh, the Pentecostal churches, not in all Pentecostal churches. But let's be very clear what the, what is being taught by the, uh, the Word of Faith movement about Christ dying spiritually. This is what is being taught there. Four things involved uh, in what there five things involved in it. Number one, they say that Jesus was separated from the Father when he died on the cross for human sin. Now, we don't have a problem with that, okay, because he said, my, my, my God, my God has forsaken me. But that's not what they mean in total. That's only one part of it. Secondly, they see that when Jesus, uh, the Father forsook Jesus on the cross, Jesus partook of a sinful nature of Satan, and um, he was transferred uh, down into hell, where Satan and his minions uh, tormented him. Uh, to quote Kenneth Copeland, this is what he said. He said, uh, Christ having been placed into hell, Satan and his uh, demonic host tortured and the emaciated poured out little wormy spirit of Christ. That's the exact quotation that he's given. The third thing is that uh, they teach that the reason why this happened is because uh, this being done to Jesus created an opportunity for God to rescue Christ and save mankind because it was a legal technicality that Satan missed out. What happened? In dragging Christ down into hell, he made the mistake of doing that because Christ had not actually sinned. So by creating a a legal breach, God was now legally uh, uh, empowered, as it were, to now rescue Christ and uh, salvage Christ out of planet Earth. And so when Christ came out of uh, hell, he was the first born-again man. Now, that's the teaching of the Word of Faith movement. And uh, that is what we will call mumbo-jumbo. We will call it inanity, gibberish, baloney. That is heretical teaching. That is not biblical teaching. It is not only stupidity. It is nonsense. It makes no sense whatsoever as far as the Bible is concerned. So, if by what Copeland is teaching about spiritual death, what I just pointed out, those five things, if that's what you mean by spiritual death, I will say to you, that is not biblically supported. So that brings us to the question, what does the Bible actually teach on this matter? Well, the first thing we need to look at is, what does the Bible mean by death? I think that is crucial to understanding what spiritual death is all about. Essentially, the word death and what it means is separation. Uh, there are three types of deaths mentioned in the Bible. There is physical death, that is when a man's spirit separates from his body. When a person is dead, that's called physical death. Uh, if we might draw attention to three verses that teach this, uh, look at Ecclesiastes 12.7. 12, Ecclesiastes 12, 
Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So here in the Old Testament in itself is teaching that the, the, the body, the, the, the dust, returns to the earth, but the Spirit goes to be Lord. If you look at Luke 23, verse 46, Luke 23 and verse 46 reads as follows. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. And the word is he dismissed his spirit. And so notice that his spirit goes to be with the Father. And then look at uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 59. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And verse 59 says the following and they stoned Stephen calling upon God and saying Lord Jesus receive my spirit here's Stephen in the first question Martha he's about to be stoned he's, he's killed and he commits his spirit to the Lord so you've got the body going to the grave the spirit going that is physical death physical death is when your body is in the grave and your spirit uh, leaves the body it either goes to be with Christ or if you're an unbeliever you go to a place called Hades to be tormented now the second death that the Bible talks about is spiritual death you find that in Ephesians 2 verse 1 and verse 5 Ephesians 2 verse 1 says and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And then verse 5. Verse 5. Even when he, we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. That is spiritual death. And that talks about the fact that our sin separates between us and God. It, it creates a rift and a breach between man and God. And notice that what causes that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins we're, we're, the word sin there is the word here martia which means that uh, we we commit sin against God we fail to come up to the standard he has got the other word is trespass which is a, a, a term of rebellion that we have willfully acted in disobedience so our sins our failure to come up to God's standards and our rebellion going against God's will creates a breach between us and God so that's what spiritual death it separates sin separates between us and God the relationship is torn it is severed between us and God that's what spiritual death is the other death that's mentioned in the Bible is a second death which you'll find in the book of Revelation this is where man is eternally separate from God for all eternity so Spiritual death, then, is when, as a result of sin, God separates himself from sin. And that's exactly what took place at the cross. When Christ died on the cross, uh, we read in the book of uh, Matthew uh, 27, verse 26. Can you read that, please? Yes, Matthew twenty-seven twenty-six says, Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That's 27, 46? 20, sorry, that was 27, 26. No, 46. 46 says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Mm -hmm. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then you'll also find the same thing in Mark chapter 15. The point that's made, being made here is this. When Christ became our substitute on the cross and he took upon himself our sins, our sins were imputed to his account. In that moment of inscrutable mystery, a mystery deeper than any man can comprehend, the father turned away from his son. And for the first time uh, in all eternity, 
he experienced that separation between himself and the Father. And that is what spiritual death is. And in that sense, uh, Christ experienced spiritual death in being separated from the Father relationally uh, on the cross. It is not teaching that he went down into hell and he was tormented by angels and, and by Satan and his minions. Uh, that is not what is taught start in the Scripture. As a matter of fact, the fact that he did not go into hell to be tormented uh, is indicated by two things. Uh, Luke 23, verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That, go ahead. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. Yeah, very, very clear. He has committed his spirit to the Father. His body is in the grave, but his spirit is gone to the Father. He, he doesn't go to hell. And not only that, he told the, uh, the thief on the cross in Luke twenty three forty three. what did he tell him? Luke twenty three forty three says, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. In paradise. Very, very clear. He did say today you're going to be with me in hell, in paradise. So it's, it's complete delusion uh, for people to be teaching this kind of heretical teaching. And it's, it's just staggering that churches will tolerate uh, this kind of nonsense being taught within the church. It is just totally poppycock, and we ought to understand what it is, reject it. But... Uh, in the sense that our Lord, when He became sin for us, and our sin was imputed to Him, in that moment, that great mysterious moment, the Father forsook His Son in relationally because of sin, because sin separates between us and God. Now, no one can fully comprehend what that meant, and the agony and the pain and the anguish that, that accompanied. But clearly, the fact that our Lord cried out uh, in that sense gives you the idea of the horror of being for the first time in all eternity, uh, his father's his, his relation is severed because he's assumed the position as our substitute and dies for our sin. But so that's what we mean by spiritual death. I just need to clarify the difference between the biblical teaching on this matter and the heretical teaching that's being taught by Kenneth Copeland and those who follow the Word of Faith movement. So, what are some of the dangers if we were to follow? Uh, the teachings of Kevin Copeland uh, there, or Kenneth Copeland there in relation to the spiritual death of Jesus? Well, there's several. Uh, number one, for example, the, the whole idea that God tricked the devil okay. and created a legal technicality. In other words, God tricked the devil to put it, take in Jesus down to hell. But the devil did that, and he did it illegally because Christ had not really committed any sin. It's just that sin was imputed to him. On that basis, that legal technicality, God was now given an opportunity to raise Jesus from the dead. I mean, this is total fiction, to be very honest with you. Uh, the other thing is that they said that uh, salvation was not accomplished on the cross. It was accomplished in hell. It was only after he'd been tormented and God delivered. But yet, in the Scriptures, every single biblical Scripture tells you that salvation was accomplished on the cross. That's where it was accomplished. So there's no hell that Christ went into to be tormented and then delivered and then there's salvation. All of this is heretical teaching. It's just uh, a man with his, uh, a great imagination, but how that people can be captured by this hogwash, I can't understand. And I just think that it's pathetic that this kind of a theology can be in the modern church where there's so much knowledge today about biblical truth that wasn't there many years ago. This is a doctrine that ought to be rejected, 
and clearly it is a non-biblical teaching. So it's not just something benign that I can uh, agree with as I watch him on TV? <laughs> Everything, anything else but being benign. Uh, to put Christ and uh, to describe Christ as a wormy little uh, creature that the devil and his minions are taking advantage is to diminish his deity and to diminish his, his godhood, kind of, is to reduce him to uh, even below a human being, uh, etc. So that is actually demoting the person of Christ and not elevating him as he should be. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp that has just come in from St. Martin in relation to what we're talking about here. Good night, Pastor. Uh, you have to explain what is what the Spirit is that goes back to God when a person dies. Well, the Spirit is the immaterial part of man, the, the two parts to the hum, humankind. Man is not complete without a body and a spirit. And that's what it is about. It's the immaterial part of of humanity. Uh, I think you can I can prove that in the scripture as well. But it's also clear that there's a distinction between the spiritual nature of man. There's also it's, it's a soul and a spirit. Now, where the line is drawn between the two of those, we don't know. But the Bible says that your whole body and spirit and mind and, and soul be preserved until the day of Jesus Christ. And then the Bible says in in Hebrews that the word of God is the dividing center between the soul and the spirit. So we know that there's an immaterial part and material part of humankind time across the eastern caribbean on this tuesday evening is 8 p.m thank you for listening to the caribbean radio lighthouse thank you for making it your favorite station and thank you for tuning in to that's truth on this tuesday evening another verse came to my mind very shortly because i suspect i can only speculate that that, that kind of a question uh, is either done for the public to to get an answer or I suspect that person may be uh, headed in uh, one of these groups, like the SDA, that doesn't believe that there's a soul and a spirit that the body is. Again, Jesus said, uh, fear not him who is able to destroy the body, but fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul. So if the body is the soul, our Lord doesn't know what he's talking about. He's making a fine distinction that doesn't exist. But clearly he makes a distinction himself that there's something called the body and something called, and they are distinct. One can be destroyed and the other cannot be destroyed by man. So I think when you come to biblical passages like this, it's very, very clear there's a material part to man, it's an immaterial part. And those distinctions are can be shown in the scriptures again and again. If you have just recently started listening to That's Truth, we have a database of previous episodes that we would love to make available to you. It's free of charge. All you have to do is have internet. You can go to Google and type in That's Truth Podcast, and you can choose your preferred provider, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or other providers that are out there, such as Spotify, and then just scroll through. We have many, many different topics uh, civil disobedience, a long series on Bible prophecy. Uh, we did a program on soul sleep and what the Bible says about that. Uh, we've talked about different cults or different religions. Uh, we talked about what is truth, talked about the Sabbath and abortion, and I could go on and on. Uh, there's 144 previous episodes, but another way that you can get to that is you can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second picture that you see on the screen. 
And right in the middle of the screen, you'll see a circle that says podcast. Click on that link, and then you will see the latest That's Truth podcast, and you can click on the archive link, and that'll take you to all previous episodes. We would love for you to be able to listen to those on your own time, and also to be able to share them with friends and family. No matter where you are joining us and listening from, we are honored that you are listening. We're broadcasting from Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And for this program, you can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then you can comment your questions. Or if you just want to watch or listen, you can join us that way. But if you want to interact with us, you can send your questions as a comment. The phone line is open and available, waiting for you to call. 1-268-462-7420 will put you live on the air. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send your question to one 1454 Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that came in from the Southern Caribbean this week, and it is as follows. In Matthew seven twenty one to 23, it speaks of individuals who prophesied, cast out devils, and did many wonderful works in the name of the Lord. It is my understanding that these were individuals who professed to be Christians. And I'm going to read that reference, and then I'll continue the question. Matthew seven twenty one to 23 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity." Continuing with their question, yet in Luke nine forty nine to 50, Jesus told John not to forbid the one who was casting out devils, for he said, forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. My question is, isn't the same, in, isn't this the same individual who cast out devils doing the same thing that was spoken of in Matthew 7? If not, what's the difference? Well, when you take the two passages together, the first thing you've got to do is look at the context. And when you look at the context, we're dealing with two different things, even though there might seem to be some comparison in terms of the uh, activities are similar. Um, Let's take Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment, verse 21 to 23. Uh, Several things. First of all, you're dealing with people who are engaged in religious activity. We're told that uh, this person does three things. He prophesies. He cast out demons, and he's done many wonderful works as he displays. The catch here is that he does these things in Jesus' name as though his name is some kind of a mantra or some magic formula. And there are one or three conclusions you can come to about that passage. Number one, that this was all a scam, that this person used some kind of trick, as a lot of these faith healers do, use some kind of trick. Number two, that it was of Satan, that even though he's using the name of Jesus, he's actually an agent of Satan. Or number three, it was actually a miraculous work that took place uh, on God's behalf. So those are the three things. Now, 
Um, we know that these people are false for three reasons. Number one, if you look at verse 15 of the same passage, you'll see that Jesus is talking about false teachers. Read that yeah. for just a moment. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Okay. If you read the whole thing, it's in that context he's talking about false teachers. So these are people that appear to be sheep. That's the outward manifestation but inwardly, they're actually wolves. So they're not actual sheep. That's the first thing you've got to understand. Secondly, Christ said in verse 23, when these people say that they've done these things, he said in verse 23, I never what? And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. I never knew. So he doesn't know these people. Now, if you come look at uh, Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 8, 3. 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. So God is known of a person that truly loves him. So clearly, if he doesn't know these people, these are not people who are lovers of God. Look at Galatians 4, 9. Galatians 4. Four nine. nine says, But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? So notice he's talking to the Galatian believers who are going back into a legalistic form of religion, and Paul is saying, you know, you, you God know you, you know, you know God. How come you're going back to this old system? So clearly God knows his believers, okay? Look at 2 Timothy 2.19. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, Pastor, we'll come back to that. we got a, qu- a caller that is calling from Antigua. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Dr. Panel. Hi, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well, Mr. Williams. Okay, good night. Good night. Good to have you calling. What can we help you with? Pastor, uh, uh, you can help me that I, about Jacob and Leah and his father-in-law. Uh-huh. Remember when he had thief the idol and hide them? Yeah. And Jacob actually, whoever they found with the idol will supposed to be dead? Yeah. So I wonder if when she, after she had made Benjamin, she dead, I wonder if that was the same cause because well, of the curse Jacob had. Well, I, I never <laughs> thought about that, and I, I really get, I know that she took the teraphim, which is the, the idol, and um, she hid it, and, and so on and so forth, but there's there's no indication that that was the particular reason she died. I think she died in childbirth when she was giving birth to her, her, her last son. Uh, I think it was Dan. Uh, Benjamin. Benjamin, sorry, that she was uh, thinking. So I, I don't, um, I think it is pure in the realm of speculation to say that's the, the, the actual cause of it. Uh, but I, I had never seen the connection between the two. So maybe you've seen something I haven't seen and something that's worth thinking about. But um, it's it's you know that uh, the fact that he pronounced a curse on the person who had actually stolen the thing and then it is fulfilled in that that is a possibility because in the Old Testament really when these uh, patriarchs spoke on these matters clearly they were prophesying whether they knew it directly or indirect and God held them accountable so that's that's a possibility. Uh, and did 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 her father ever get a chance to repent? Well, again, we don't know. Uh, uh, we know that, uh, which one? You want Jacob? No, the Jacob father, I know. Uh, Laban? Laban? Yeah, yeah we, we don't know. We don't, go, we haven't, we don't meet uh, Laban after he's had the encounter where he and Jacob separate, so we don't know. 
Uh, and I, I, you know, the temptation is to speculate there. And again, I don't like to speculate, but the Bible doesn't speak to this matter. So we don't know if uh, at a later point, uh, maybe he and Jacob, you know, the family met again and uh, they straightened out matters and they got right with God. I, I, we don't know in that regard. We just left in limbo, not knowing with any certainty. That's one of the great dangers. People try to fill in these, these spots where there's no biblical answer. And that's why, for example, some churches take uh, the 12 years and try to fill in the date, what happened after Christ from 12 years until he was 30, and they come mm-hmm. with all these speculative theories. So we've got to be very careful. We don't go beyond what God has revealed in Scripture and try to speculate. Okay. And one more thing. Sure. Remember in... When when Paul had told Timothy that Alexander did so much bad things and yeah, the, he gave him a word to Satan. Yeah. When what would you, what would you interpret that? How would I interpret that? Yeah, when Paul said he gave Alexander with Satan, let Satan destroy his soul or whatever. Well, you know, there's a, there's a similar teaching like that in the book of uh, Corinthians chapter five, where the young man who's in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And the church is boasting about him. And Paul said, look, put the young man out of the church so that his body might be destroyed and his spirit be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. So clearly uh, it is talking about when a person who goes outside the pale of the church, because within the church, which is the body of Christ, there is protection by Christ. But when a person sins and goes beyond the church, that protection and that hedge that's around that person is is gone and that person is now exposed to demonic influence and satanic uh, control so that's what Paul is saying that's part of the punishment when you excommunicate a person from the church he's, he's moved out of the realm of God's protection and he's now become possible to become a victim of the of Satan and that's what happened to the young man fortunately for us we would discover in second uh, Corinthians the young man did come to his senses. He did repent. He did ask forgiveness. The only problem is, no, he wanted forgiveness. The church was harsh. They didn't want to forgive him. Paul says, look, you know, if you don't forgive this guy, uh, it can lead into despair and despondency. So Paul said, I have forgiven him, so you must forgive him. So once he repents, you forgive him. Uh, so, But uh, when a person sins, uh, that can happen. And uh, Paul delivered him over to, to Satan to be chastened uh, brought back to repentance or if not uh, his body to be destroyed but after the the, the young man in Corinthians chapter 5 he was a Christian but Alexander was not a Christian well I don't know if uh, what the chastening of the Lord might have done to Alexander uh, but clearly, if Paul has delivered him over to Satan to be uh, to be disciplined or to be to be um, persecuted or whatever, he's taken him from under the pale of God's protection. Uh, but Paul always saw any kind of chastening or discipline would be remedial. It's always with a view to saving the person as opposed to destroying them. Uh, that's the Christian approach, that even though we, we, we discipline a person or we chasten a person or we excommunicate a person, the end goal is always restoration. And uh, Paul uh, was never a vindictive person. And I think if Alexander was chastened by the enemy and brought to a sense of uh, surrender and um, um, repentance, I think uh, Paul would have forgiven him. Okay, then. Okay, sir. Thanks for explanation. Yes, God bless. Okay, then. Bye. Bye Bye-bye, sir. Thank you very much. Say hi to the wife. (laughs) Thank you very much for your call. And we appreciate you listening here in Antigua and encouraging others to listen. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 814. 
Pastor, we have, um, before we jump back, we have okay. a question that uh, is a follow-up. Uh, the listener from St. Martin uh-huh. uh, is asking for more explanation. What is it called, the spirit that goes back to God when a person dies? I don't know for sure, but reading between the lines here, I believe maybe uh, there's some uncertainty about whether the person goes directly to heaven when they die. Oh, well, I think the, the, the biblical teaching in the book of Corinthians in particular is absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, remember that prior to our Lord's resurrection, let's be very, very clear, uh, when people died, they went to a place called uh, Sheol or Hades. And clearly from our Lord's teaching in Luke chapter 16, there were two compartments. There's one where the the, the evil man, uh, the rich man died. He went to a place of torment. And um, the Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom of what is called paradise. So clearly there was a distinction between the saved and the unsaved even uh, before Christ died. But when Christ died and uh, these sins were completely atoned for, we are told in the book of Ephesians he took captivity captive. And those believers that were confined to Hades, uh, Abraham's bosom was taken and now absent from the body is present with the Lord. So our Lord's death on the cross and his resurrection has brought about a transformational change in terms of where a person goes who's a believer after he dies. The believer no longer goes to Hades. The believer now goes to be with the Lord. That is being, that's taught in, in the book of Corinthians, uh, etc. So when the believer dies now, his spirit goes to be with the Lord. Uh, prior to Christ's death on the cross where uh, the atonement was made and the price for sin was paid and God uh, was, uh, man was now justified before God by faith, it meant that that person was not going directly to the Lord. He was confined to a place called Hades, but in a place called Abraham's bosom. That's very clear from Luke chapter 16. But presently, uh, the believer goes to be with the Lord. Paul said, absent from the body. As Paul says, I have a desire to depart to be with the Lord. Uh, Paul understands now that when he dies, he goes directly into God's presence. We hope that that answers your question. Thank you for listening from St. Martin, and thank you for sending in your question and follow-up question. Pastor, real quickly back to Genesis. I've been reading through the book of Genesis here at the beginning of this year, and I'm amazed at how God called people who were really pretty heathen sinners. I mean, the idols that they were worshiping, their immorality, and it's just a reminder to me that we don't have to be clean before salvation. We can't be clean yeah. that God calls us. Well, the, the, the most difficult person to reach is, is not the sinner who is down and outer. The most difficult person to, li- to, to reach is a religious, moral person. The person who believes that they're good, uh, they are philanthropic, uh, they 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 help people. They're you know they're they're righteous people. Those are the difficult people to make them understand that they're lost sinners in need of Christ. And the fact that they are always comparing themselves with other people who are far worse than they are, they come to a false conclusion that they don't need God. They don't need forgiveness. They don't need pardon. After all, what sins have they committed? 
But the, the, the problem there, of course, is that when you begin to delve into your mind now, your thoughts, and understand that sin is going far beyond just what you do physically or outwardly, it has to do with what you think, your motives. When a person begins to look at himself in that perspective, he understands he's a real monster on the inside. I think any person who's honest would recognize that this one of the big problems. Pastor, we have a caller from Montserrat. Thank you very much for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yes. Um, hello, good night. Good night, sir. Good night, good night, good night. Um, first, um, where can I find the scripture? Um, like when the wicked dead, they go to a place and he needs to be tormented. Well, if you look at Luke chapter 16, and our Lord, Luke, Luke, Luke chapter 16, 16 yeah. Okay. It's in there. That's where our Lord explains when the rich man dies and the and the and the uh, the poor man dies. There's a contrast between the believer and the unbeliever, and you feel that both died. One goes to be tormented, and one goes to be comforted. Yeah. That is the explanation as to now in the in the Old Testament when a man when people died they went to a place called Sheol which is equivalent to Hades because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that word Sheol is translated Hades so they're the same place but our Lord yeah. explained the, 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 that clearly that there is certainly a place for the righteous and a place for the unrighteous. Yeah. Okay. One more in the gun. Yes, sir. Um, you could have. The question from Saint Kitts with the um, body and the spirit. Yeah. Um, you could just demonstrate them from uh, Genesis. God made man and then he breathed to the nostril and then man become a living soul. So you could just demonstrate all that. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, but you know, the problem is that. Okay, sir. Thanks okay. for calling. I appreciate that. Now, I was saying that part of the problem with that is that uh, if you know the Seventh-day Adventist teaching, they say that the soul is the body, and that there's no distinction between the body and the soul, uh, and they don't see that man has a material part and an immaterial part, basically. That's the problem we're trying to draw. The, the, the But I think what you're saying is correct, that there was a body of Adam, but it was not alive, and then God put his breath into it, and it became an animated uh, soul or an ability spirit. So you're correct about that. Thank you very much for your call and continue to encourage others there in Montserrat to listen to the program. Pastor, jumping back to our question from Trinidad and Tobago in relation to uh, the casting out of devils, and that passage it, is probably one of the most sobering in my mind in it all is, of Scripture. It is, because you've got uh, religious activity at a level that is not very common. Uh, prophesying, of course, casting out demons and doing many other wonderful works. And then it's done in the name of Jesus. But yet our Lord points out very clearly, uh, number one, that these are false prophets uh, who are appearing to be sheep, but actually they're wolves. So what they are outwardly is completely contradicting what they are. And the second thing is that Christ said, I don't know you. Our Lord says in John chapter 10, he knows his sheep, and his sheep knows him. So if he says he doesn't know these people, it means that they can't be sheep. The third thing that tells you clearly that these are not saved people is not only that they're called false prophets, uh, then he said, I never knew you, but the other one is uh, in verse number 23b of the same sex. Okay, I have pulled up other passages. Remind me where we're at, Matthew 7? Yeah, Matthew 7, verse 23. Matthew seven twenty three. Thank you for your patience as I flip there. Matthew seven twenty three. 
And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So that's the third thing. So they are false prophets. Number two, he doesn't know them, so they not can't be a sheep because he knows his sheep. And number three, they are workers of iniquity. And this word, workers of iniquity, means that they're practicing iniquity. Now, what, what's iniquity? If you go through the Bible, iniquity is when you practice unrighteousness. That's what iniquity. As a fact, in fact, of fact, the word here that is used is the word anomia, which means without law. These are lawless people, as it were. They are not governed by any transcendent moral principles. They are living reckless lives. These are antinomians or libertines. They live uh, uh, lives that are displeasing to the Lord. They are not people whose lives are governed by the principles of Scripture or the norms of Scripture. Uh, and you know James John has a lot to say about this look at 1st John chapter 3 verse 6 to 9 1st John chapter 3 verses 6 to 9 says whosoever abideth in him sinneth not whosoever sinneth had not seen him neither known him little children let no man deceive you he that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous he that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For the purpose of the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Through which verse? Uh, verse 9. Verse 9 reads as follows, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him and cannot sin because he is born of God. Now again, that creates problems for people who read it in the King James Version. You know that. But in the Greek language, all in the linear uh, present tense, which has to do, he that is born of God does not habitually practice sin. And he that is born of God uh, is righteous and practices righteousness. So here are people who are apparently performing uh, great religious works, but God doesn't know them, Christ doesn't know them, and the thing that marks their life is that they are lawless in the sense that they are practicing unrighteousness, they're living an unrighteous life. So what what really defines what a person really is, a, a true believer, is not the outward religious works that you perform. That's the thing that is pointing out. It's the inward state of a person and how that person lives. When Christ saves you, there's a transformational change that must take place in your life. You cannot be saved and continuously live a sinful life. It's, it's for, the Bible says uh, it can't happen because the seed of God is in you. The problem we have today, we have a lot of people in our churches simply that are not saved. Uh, and we, don't, we are not prepared to accept that because we say, they say they have faith. But do they have saving faith, redemptive faith, justifying faith, which is transformative faith? And that's the point he's making here. You can have all your religious work in the world, and your life is habitually in a life of sin. He says, you know, um, you're not his. The other thing that if you look at First uh, um, Corinthians chapter six, verse nine to seven. Remember we said the word iniquity means unrighteous living. That's what the text means, basically. And First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. Know ye not that unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, 
but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And you notice how Paul prefaces the whole thing? Let no one deceive you. The person who practices and habitually lives a life of unrighteousness, the Bible says he is deceived. It's very clear. Such were some of you, not such as some of are you. Uh, and one needs to understand this is what our Lord is dealing The whole text is trying to draw the contrast between an outward Christianity that does a lot of religious activities, a lot of works, and the inward state of a man that li- results in a life of unrighteous living. What really is important in the Christian faith is a transformative life. That's what's important, not the religious works that we do. And we miss it all if we think that it's all about miraculous works and, and what matters is the life that's the emphasis of the Bible. You know, it's interesting, Nathan, that in John chapter 10, verse 41, uh, could you just read that for a moment? Yeah, John ten forty-one, And went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John was at first baptized, and there he abode. That's John ten forty-one. I'm sorry. I'm struggling tonight. That's <laughs> verse 40. Uh, verse 41, take number two. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. Now, notice the amazing statement. You, you put, they put so much emphasis on miracles today, mm-hmm. doing religion. He, John didn't perform one single miracle. Yet in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said there was never a man born greater than John. See, But notice that every word that John said came to pass. See, So it's not about the religious works and the religious activity that people do that defines them as a believer. What defines a person as a believer is the righteous life that a person has that is completely transformative than what he was previously. He's a new Christian in Christ, and his life is the valid test as whether or not he's an authentic Christian. This passage is teaching the same thing. Now, the question may ask, people may ask, but why would... A person who is this way, why would he be able to cast out a demon or or uh, prophesy? Well, there are a lot of people today who are in the pulpit who should not be there. Uh, it's become a mercenary uh, means. It's almost become commercial uh, for some people. It's a money racket that's involved in a lot of cases. Uh, I, 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 you know, you take of what this guy, uh, if I might use um, Benny Hinn. I mean, for years, Benny Hinn has deceived people, millions of dollars. And then one day he comes on and said he recognized he's wrong and he's so sorry he's wrong. Well, if he was really sorry, he'll give back people the millions of dollars he's taken from them, right? But there are a lot of people there who see it strictly as a business. The other thing is this, God honors the name of Christ. And it is possible for God to do something miraculous to honor his name. Not the person that is actually doing the work, but to help the person who is in need so that, uh, you know, rather than being misled and then he begins to blame God, God can do something miraculously uh, and, and perform that. It's interesting. Uh, and then the other, you know, let's forget that God is a God of mercy and he is more concerned about the person who is hurting the man who is making these bogus claims. And it's possible for a man to use God's Christ's name and God honors Christ's name and wants to meet the need of the person who is suffering, but not because this person has any great power of God. See, The other thing that we need to realize that sometimes the name of Christ is used, but behind Satan, uh, the use of that name, are people who are in line or in league with Satan, and that may be a possibility as well. 
So the evidence of true conversions of obedience is righteousness is a transformed life. That's the first thing I need to point out about this case. Now let's go to the second case, the other passages. Luke chapter 9, 49 to 50. Yeah. Uh, that says, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one... No, 46. Read from 46. Okay, give me just a second. All right, from verse number 46 says, Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest? And Jesus perceived the thought of their heart and took a child and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you the same shall be great. Verse 49, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followed us not. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Okay. Again, we're dealing with something completely different. Uh, in the first case, you're dealing with somebody who's a fake, who's a false prophet, who Christ doesn't know, and whose life is a life of habitually practice of iniquity of righteousness. In this case, you're dealing with something completely different. Now, let's deal with the context of the passage. Uh, there are several parallel passages that go with this. Uh, in addition to the one that was just read there in Luke chapter 9, there's also Mark chapter 9, 33 to 41. Don't have, don't have to turn there. And then also in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 to 5, they all deal with the same, uh, the same um, theme in this particular passage. Now, the context, the one that provides us the greatest context to understand what is happening in this passage is Matthew. In Matthew. And uh, Matthew gives us the background to the events that took place in this. First of all, our Lord had recently announced that the kingdom is coming. After he announced that, he then uh, took the three disciples up into the house, uh, onto the mountain and they were, they were transfigured. They saw the glory of the coming kingdom and saw the, the deity of Christ shine through his humanity. Thirdly, uh, these three people seem to be given preferential treatment. They were the only three allowed to experience that stupendous uh, miracle that took place in the Mount of Transfiguration. Now we discover, following that, they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. See, So we're talking about a sectarian spirit, uh, uh, people who uh, are, are trying to basically... Um, they have this religious exclusivity about themselves. And our Lord, in that process, began to take a little child and to teach them what greatness is. And he t tells them two things about greatness. He said, if you want to be great, number one, you've got to be willing to take be the last person, take the last spot. So put others before yourself. And number two, if you want to be great, you've got to take the lowliest place. You've got to be a servant. So if you want to be great, you got And then... Having said that, um, he, he takes this little child and he says, whoever received this little child uh, in my name, uh, receiveth me. And then that triggers in John's an event that took place a few days before where John said, okay, because he said in my name. He said, so Lord, uh, we met this guy who has been casting out demons and we forbid him. And the reason why we forbid him is this, he was not following us. And Jesus said to him, uh, don't forbid a person uh, in that case. And the point is this, 
because a person is not following your particular group, uh, it doesn't mean that the person is off in terms of his, his practice or his doctrine. And our Lord had to draw a line on this sectarian spirit. Uh, so in other words, this, this person that is performing this uh, exorcism in the name of Jesus, he's not doing something contrary to what Jesus thought. Jesus said, you know, you have this power to cast out demons in my name. He's using that and he's casting out demons. The disciples, on the other hand, because they're not, he's not part of their group feels that he must put restraint on this man exercising uh, this this particular power that Christ has given. And our Lord makes it very clear that um, if the guy is, in my name, casting out demons, um, don't prevent him and stop him. Uh, he's not like the guy that we talked about who is not a true believer. He's not a person practicing unrighteousness. He's not a person that I don't know. Uh, and therefore, he, he says to him, uh, don't try to put any impediment in his way. So I think this is a lesson being taught by Christ, is that we must not allow our subjective religious bias and prejudice against someone who is not belonging to our group, that they cannot be at the same time serving the Lord, and we must put restraints upon them. You know, we sometimes made idolatry of our denomination, and we think that because we're Baptists and nobody's another Baptist, therefore what they're doing is wrong. That's not true. There are a lot of good churches in Antigua that are not Baptists in their doctrine or in their teaching in that matter. But they, they hold to the doctrine of Christ. They may not believe everything we believe, but that doesn't mean that they're all heretical and that they're not doing the Lord's work. We need to be very, very careful as far as... Now, let me show you something else in this passage. You remember what Paul said in um, the book of uh, Philippians chapter 1? Nathan, probably you can turn there. Philippians 1, verse 12 to 18. Philippians 1, 12 to 18 says, But I would ye should understand, brethren that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of good will. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Verse 18, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. That's an amazing statement. Paul is saying, look, there are people who are preaching the gospel and they're doing it in the wrong spirit. They're trying to add affliction to my bonds, etc., etc., and cause me great harm. Uh, but Paul doesn't say, let's shut them up. Paul said, whether they preach it in, in sincerity or in truth, the important thing that Christ is preached. So he has this providential uh, generosity towards people in this regard. His concern is the name of Christ being exalted. And uh, unless the doctrine is contrary to what Paul is teaching and preaching another gospel, because Paul said, if a man preach another gospel other than he preached, let him be a curse. But in the case where the person is preaching the gospel, but he's not doing it even from the right motive, but yet the gospel is being preached, Paul said, I rejoice. Do we have that spirit of generosity in us? Uh, do we understand that what really matters is the gospel of Christ being preached? in this regard. We're not going to follow error. We're not going to endorse error. But where the, the gospel is being preached, and it's the gospel, 
we ought to be very hesitant in condemning uh, other groups that hold different positions than us in this matter. Let me show you another verse. Look at Numbers chapter 11. And this is, this is something that happened in the case of Moses, where Joshua is um, zealous for Moses' authority, and um, he is concerned that Moses should put some restraint on certain people uh, lest he might lose his authority. And, and uh, it's a marvelous how, how Moses responds to this. But if you look at um, Numbers 11, ver- read from verse 24. Numbers eleven twenty four says, And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people, and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud, and spake unto him, and took of the Spirit that was upon him, and gave it unto the seventy elders. And it came to pass that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went not out of the ta- onto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them? And Moses got him into the camp, he and the elders of Israel. That's a classic example there, that uh, people feel that because uh, Moses is the leader, he's the authority. You've got people who are displaying a, a gift of prophecy. And even Joshua is saying to Moses, look, shut these people up. You know, but Moses recognizes that God is not just restricted to using Moses; He's using uh, Eldad and Medad. And uh, Moses said, I, "I'm not going to do that. I wish that everybody can prophesy." He's not concerned about his own glory. He's not concerned about his own position, his own authority. We're just concerned about God's work and God's glory. And that, that is what is, is being taught in this particular passage. It's not a person who is uh, practicing unrighteousness, not a person who is a fake or a false person. This is a genuine person using the name of Christ. So they're dealing with two different scenarios altogether. One is false, one is real. And uh, the apostle and, and God, our Lord makes a, a subtle distinction. But the thick thing here is we have a, the danger of our ecclesiastical machinery being made an idol. That's the danger that we've got to be careful about, uh, even as, as Christians. Now, that doesn't mean we support error and that we will not come against error. But at the same time, we've got to be very, very careful that we don't think that we alone have the, 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 the corner on truth uh, as far as the Word of God is concerned because that leads us into sectarianism and, uh, and, and isolation and, and labeling everybody else who doesn't do what we do and cross their eyes and, and dot their eyes, cross their T's and dot their eyes, that somehow they're heretical. That is absolutely not true. So I hope you can see there's a clear distinction between these two different cases. Even though the activity is the same, casting out demons, uh, notice that one has to do with character and one has to do with motive. Uh, and I think that is a crucial difference between these two different passages of Scripture. Now, just to clarify, can I take a stand against those who claim the Christian name 
but are maybe practicing things that I'm not comfortable with or have a different interpretation of Scripture. For example, there are different interpretations of tongues uh, and how that gift may be used in today's day and age. Yeah, any any false doctrine that is clearly at odds with Scripture, we ought to take a stand against uh, false doctrine. So I'm not advocating here that we ignore error. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what I'm advocating. What I'm, I'm guarding against is to think that uh, we Baptists are the only ones that have a corner on the truth, or the Presbyterians think that they are the ones that got the corner of the truth, or the Reformed tale. We got to understand that there are uh, many Christian groups who do not hold to every major doctrine, but they hold to the fundamentals of the faith. That is, they hold to the fact that this creation, they hold to the fact that. Christ was a virgin born. They hold to the fact of the resurrection. There's a heaven, there's a hell. Uh, they believe in the vicarious atonement of Christ. They believe that a person is saved by faith and faith alone. Uh, those are the core doctrines of the Bible. They might differ on even on the interpretation of tongues. Now, our position is very clear on that matter. But it doesn't mean because they have a false interpretation in that area that they're not saved or everything they do is wrong or they're not teaching the gospel. Uh, we need to be very, but it doesn't stop us at the same time saying that the, the way they believe in this particular, we clarify it by giving the correct interpretation. And we don't endorse what they're doing, but we don't label them as totally apostate because they're off on a. Let me take another matter. Most Reformed churches are off eschatology. They do not believe that there's any place for Israel. They do not believe in what is called the premillennial faith. Most. Um, theological books that are written by Reformed theologians and they are uh, millennials. But we don't label them as heretical because they are millennials, you know. And you cannot go to any school or any theological seminary and study in the great theologian like Hodge or Burcroft without understanding that these men were not uh, pre-millennials. They were uh, millennials. But those textbooks are still used in theological seminaries. So they differ on in that area. So I hope that that helps to clarify somewhat the position on this matter. Thank you for that clarification and that reminder. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.44. Pastor, we have a another follow-up question in relation to the spirit. Uh, what is the human spirit that goes back to God? But I thought we just answered that question. Um, the point we're making here is the human spirit is the immaterial part of it. It's the, the human personality. Let me put it that What constitutes the human personality is a matter of what? You must have emotions, you must have feelings, you must have a will. That's what creates personality. That is not uh, in the human, that is not the material part of man. That's the immaterial part of man. So whatever constitutes the human personality that makes man what man is outside the body that spiritual part goes to be with God. Let me put it this way. Uh, take take um, Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, clearly, Moses had died. We know that uh, Elijah had gone up to, uh, to was uh, translated. But they appeared. Uh, and, and clearly, they are in spirit form. So, that should help some extra. And then the other, there's another passage of Scripture which Christ said, God is not the God of the dead, He's the God of the living. And in that uh, quotation, He's pointing out that He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, or I was the God of Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, saying that Abraham and Jacob, all those people are living. The spirit is a living, but the body is dead. That's the, in, that's the part the Bible emphasizes. 
Pastor, we have a question that's come in from a listener. What should be my mindset in these trying COVID days? For example, these are active case numbers. Antigua has 63 active cases, Barbados 366, St. Lucia 749, St. Vincent and the Grenadines 744, and Guadalupe nearly 7,000 active cases of COVID. What should my focus be on and how should I keep from being overwhelmed? Your focus should be where it should always be. Your focus should be on God. And your focus should be on the reality that your life and my life is very short, that this life is a preamble to eternity, and that at, we don't, nothing in this life is certain other than death and taxes, okay? Uh, our Lord did not plant us on planet Earth to eke out an existence that is going to be uh, eternal. All of us are going to die at some point in time. That's a reality. We, we, there's, there's not a man that uh, has ever lived that has never died. And uh, we are going to die someday. So I think what we need to focus on is to focus on our relationship with God, re-examine our lives, recognize that we're living in a very tenuous, dangerous time. Uh, there's no certainty that we'll be here next year or year after. We don't know what this thing is going to turn out to be. So the best thing to do at this point in time is to live a close relationship with God and get your life right with God. That's the, that's the safest means in this whole matter that we are currently faced with. Uh, and there's no... And by the way, this is how we should be living even without COVID. But unfortunately, that things like COVID forces us to really re-examine our priorities in life and then try to straighten out what we should really focus on. And if this does anything else but bring us to an understanding of the tenuousness of a human nature in our, in our lives and to cause us to understand that what really is vitally important is our relationship with God, it would have accomplished its great work uh, in terms of uh, what God would desire for us. A follow-up that has just come in in relation to that. How do I balance my spiritual focus and government regulations? Well, I am. I'm assuming that's talking about, like, if the government says you can't have services late at night, uh, church services, and that. Kind well, of I, I think at this point in time, to be very honest with you, let's be very reasonable. The government is not uh, against church. The government is not saying we shouldn't worship. Okay. Uh, the other reality is that there are many different ways we can we can have services. You can have Zoom. You can still have that kind of interaction, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think at this point in time. Um, as long as we are convinced that it's not an anti-God uh, effort on the government part to shut down churches, which I know is not there, we should cooperate with the government as much as possible until this thing is brought under some measure of control and we can return to some kind of normalcy. We don't want to be Christians jeopardizing the lives of other people. Uh, that is not love. That's not compassion. That is arrogance on our part. And remember what the Bible says. Remember uh, the devil took Jesus to the height of the pinnacle and said, cast yourself down because he's waiting he'll take, he'll give his angel charge to, 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 uh, so that if you dash your foot against the rock, he'll protect you. And the Lord said, you must not tempt the Lord thy God. You don't deliberately put yourself in areas of danger to prove who God is. See, that, that's what he's pointing out. Uh, so we got to be very, very careful that uh, we don't become presumptuous. And, you know, there's another verse of Scripture which says that we must, or, uh, Romans chapter 13, that we must ordain every ordinance of God and that we should obey government. That is, unless what government requires of us 
completely goes against what God's will is for us. At this juncture, we're faced with a disease that until we get a vaccine that somehow can solve the problem, all of us are in danger. And it's love to show concern, not just for yourself, but for others. You don't want to jeopardize the life of other people. Take your family, for example. Let's suppose you live a reckless and you just go there and you catch COVID. You come home, you give it to your children, you give it to your daughter, your grandparents. Can you live with that? I don't think you could, see. So I would say to you that as much as possible, try to follow the protocols the government has laid down as long as they're not totally unreasonable. And I don't think they're unreasonable at this stage and point. I think the government is trying to do its best, it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, at the same time, let's pray for government for wisdom. Not only that, let's pray for ourselves. Let's, let's, let's make this uh, an occasion for serious introspection and drawing nigh to God. Let's make that the whole purpose. That should be the balance. Uh, praying for the government and it'll make the right decision. At the same time, praying for guidance and getting to know the Lord better and look at your life. It's about time. We're so busy that we hardly ever have time to sit down. Whenever, when last have you meditated or reflected on your life? Seriously, soberly. Now we have that time, whether we wanted it or not, has been granted to us. Uh, but let's not use it in just complaining and murmuring. Let us use it uh, for good purposes of examining ourselves to see where, how far we were from God and where we need to get with Him. Pastor, we have a follow-up on the topic of the soul, body, and the spirit. Uh, thank you for each of you for sending in your questions this evening. Good evening. What is the difference between the soul, the spirit, and the body? I just pointed out, and I, I, I would suggest, I, you know, we did a program on this. I'm going to ask Nathan to give it to you later, but let me just hurriedly point out something, right? Man has a material part. It's called the body. Okay? That's the body. We all know that. We go into a funeral. We see a man's body in a coffin. We know one thing. That's his body. But he's not there. We know he's not there because you can slap him, you can kiss him, you can talk to him, he can't respond to you. So his body is there, but what animated him, what made him uh, alive is not there. That is God's spirit that was given to man. Okay, That's the material part. That's the conscious part of man uh, that, was t that, that, that goes to be with the Lord. Okay? Uh, we don't know that in the scriptures, according to Thessalonians, I think it's chapter 5 and also Hebrews chapter 4, that it talks about the not only the spirit, but the soul and the spirit. Paul said that, I, that he was praying that the whole body and soul and spirit be kept uh, perfect until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, so clearly there's a, a tripartite nature of man. And uh, that's what the Bible teaches. Where the spirit, the immaterial soul and the immaterial spirit, where, that, where those two... Um, um, differentiate or where they coalesce we don't know but that's the spiritual part of, of humankind now let me put it another way that is make some clarity the body is the world consciousness of man it puts man in contact with his senses with the material world the soul is the self-consciousness of man it makes man be able to feel it makes man able to understand and it makes man to experience the will the spiritual part of man is that which connects man with God so you've got the God consciousness, the self-consciousness, and the world consciousness. That's what constitutes humanity, a, a real person. So it's not just one part to man. 
there's a, a tripart nature of man. And by the way, this is reflected in the Trinity, that man is made in the image of God. That makes sense when you begin to study it and compare the two to try to understand what is meant, made, what is meant to be made in the image of God. Man reflects the triune nature of God in being a tripartite be- being. If you would like more information and more in-depth study just on that particular topic of the soul and the spirit and the body, uh, if you go to our previous episode, episode number 64, it's entitled Soul Sleep and the Afterlife, and let me tell you how you can do that. You can go to our website, www.radiolighthouse.org, and you can scroll down to the Second picture that you see, which I believe is of a microphone, and right in the center, you're going to see a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and then scroll down. Uh, You'll notice a link for the latest That's Truth podcast. You can click on the archive button, and you have all previous 144 episodes. Go to episode 64, Soul Sleep and the Afterlife, and... That will be a full episode discussing that particular topic. Nathan, what we might have to do, and you put a note here, we might have to do something with the the nature of man. Um, I think that we probably need to do that. What 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 constitutes humanity? And we could do a biblical um, program on that. I think it would be helpful maybe to go into greater detail on this subject. All right. I made a note of that as a future possible episode. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp from Antigua. A young man told me that God told him not to wear a mask. But I told him, I find no scripture to support that. What is your take, Pastor? Sounds to me that you answered him in a very common sense way. I mean, it's total folly. Uh, to know that from all the scientific knowledge we have that this thing can be uh, transferred from an individual through uh, nasal passage, etc., in, in your, your, your breath and your, 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 your nasal, nasal fuel, etc., and then to deliberately having that full knowledge. And this is not, this is not uh, fantasy that we're talking about, nor myth. This is actual scientific fact. To my mind, to ignore that is to ignore science, which is proven science. We're not talking about superficial pseudoscience of evolution. We're talking about actual factual science that can be tested, etc., etc. I think that that person is acting out of folly. I think that they need to reevaluate their decision. And I find it very, very hard uh, to believe that of all the people in Antigua, the Lord would tell one individual not to wear a mask. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Uh, this person may be self-conceited and really, um, I think, is um, more a matter of egotism, I think, than it is of spirituality. Pastor, are there dangers in making statements like that, saying, God told me this, when you know good and well God didn't tell you that? Well, the, the danger is that it brings God's name into disrepute, because let me show you something. Let the same person make that statement, in two weeks he has COVID. What does a person listening on the radio, or he is told that to, what does that say him about, uh, talk about God? It is either that the guy was speaking out of folly, or this God has deliberately led this man down to a place where he can actually come to his death. What kind of a God would do that? A lot of these uh, statements are made to impress people with spirituality, but in long term, when you begin to look at it, it's just uh, human um, egotism and uh, conceit. 
spiritual pride that lead them along that track. And once they've made that kind of a statement, it's hard to retract it. So they keep holding to it until eventually the Lord make them swallow it by something happening to show people that this is not really uh, a divine uh, revelation or divine unction. Pastor, we have one minute left. What would you say to summarize to each individual listening the importance of being right with Jesus Christ? How do I know for sure that I'm a Christian? Well, first of all, the importance. I think there's never been a time in my life uh, I can think about where we've faced a serious crisis as we're currently facing. Uh, I learned, I think it was last week, uh, I think it was a 39-year-old man died uh, of the the COVID. I mean, yeah. any person. I mean, I was expecting to hear like 70, 80, whatever it is, yeah. but th- that, that should cause... It's just two years older than I am. <laughs> that is something that it, it provoked you to really think about this matter. So I think that all of us should be aware that our time is uncertain and the best thing to do at this point in time is to get before God, pour your heart out before God, do a serious forensic examination of your life. If you are not a Christian, you're convicted you're not a Christian, repent of your sins, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and go on and live with Him in a close relationship. Let that be the important thing to guide your life this week. Does it matter what church I go to? Let's not talk about church at this point in time. Let's make sure our relationship with God is correct, and then find a good church where the gospel is preached, and where the Bible is honored, and you'll be in a good church. God bless you. Do I have to be baptized? After you're saved. Uh, but it doesn't. Requ- it's not required for me to be saved? No, it's not part of the requirement of salvation, but it follows salvation as a public profession that you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you very much for joining us for tonight's episode of That's Truth. Be sure you join us next week as we continue to answer your questions. Have a blessed night, and tune in next week. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.